Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. You may have noticed that the title of this message is a message for the graduates. But I want to ask you not to tune me out this morning if your graduation still lies in front of you or if your graduation is in the rearview mirror and keeps getting further in the distance. Because although I am focusing the truths in this passage to our graduates, they are applicable for all of us, no matter what stage of life we are in. So please hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May God be glorified in the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. The main command, the main point of this passage is found at the end of verse 1. The command, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, is the main point of these two verses. It's a description of the Christian life. Now, most of the time in the New Testament, the Christian life is compared to a walk. But the author of Hebrews, in encouraging those who first heard this message that was preached, to those who hear the text today, he is encouraging us to engage our faith, to engage our walk with Christ with a vigor that would accompany one who is not just walking in a pedantic manner, but who is running with everything that they have. And it's running with joy and utter abandonment. In the past, I've used the Scottish Olympian Eric Little as an example of faith and running the race. Eric Little is not only known for his stance in the faith and for winning a gold medal at the 1924 Paris Olympics, he is also known for his unorthodox running style. When the starting pistol would fire, Eric Little would begin the race running as most other runners would with good form and the elbows working back near the body. But as he continued in the race, a metamorphosis would occur. Sheer joy and pleasure would overtake Eric Little and his head would begin to go back and a smile come across his face and his arms would, get move, would move away from his body and start flailing in a way that was most unorthodox because in that moment of running with everything that he had, there was a joy that overtake him and he ran with utter abandonment. In like manner, we are being instructed to run the race that God has placed us on with utter, utter enjoyment, with vigor and engaging life, not just cautiously, but engaging life with our faith unapologetically. This is a call for us to live the life of faith 
with all that we have. And notice the course that we are running is one that demands endurance, and it is the race that is set before us. The race that is set before us is a reference to the days that lie ahead. Just as a runner is assigned a lane, our life is a lane that has been placed before us. And this race that is placed before us is one that has been designed by God. The task that we will engage in tomorrow will not take God by surprise. The energy that we exert in living life, whether it be in the moments of jubilation or in the moments of grief, is the course that is set before us by God. Job echoed this. This man who is well acquainted with suffering said in Job chapter 14 verse 5, since his days are numbered. Now his would be our days. Since man's days are determined and the number of man's months are with you, that is God. And you, God, have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. The calendar before us has been set by God. The ups and downs of life are set by God. He is God in the good times and God in the bad times. And what that means is that when life is smooth and the highway is laid out in front of us in a straight line and we are able to be on cruise control, we praise God that he has so ordained it. But when the times are bumpy and the road is rough, we praise God equally because he also has ordained those times. You see these extremes in Hebrews chapter 11. Just before this admonition that we will deal with more in a few moments, the, the preacher has laid out examples of faith. And I want you to look at some of them, if you will. Look in Hebrews 11 at verse 32. I believe this book was preached to the early church. And this preacher says, what more shall I say? Which means he has a lot more to say. Shall I speak of the time, there he says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Can I get a hallelujah? The power of God at work. And we read those and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the victory that is ours. But church, we must read on. Look in the middle of verse 35. Some are tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Sobering, isn't it? One group, as we are told in verse 34, escaped the edge of the sword. But yet another group was sawn in two by the edge of the sword. Now keep in mind, both groups are being held up as models of faith. 
We can't look at this latter group and say, well, somehow their faith was deficient or they would have done the things the previous group did and seeing their dead brought back to life and putting armies to flight. We can't go that route. Both groups are commended for their faith. But the question resonates. Why did one group have trials and troubles while the other went from victory to victory? And the only answer I believe is this. That is God's prerogative. That's the course he laid out. And rather than fighting at God and maybe questioning, Lord, is this just? Is to say, God, you are God and you are wise. And I will trust you no matter what shape the road is that I must travel. J.R.R. Tolkien captured this thought very eloquently in his work, The Fellowship of the Ring. If you're not familiar with the story, there is a ring of power that is evil. And it seeks to enslave the entire world. And it must be destroyed And the task of destroying the ring has fallen to a a hobbit who is somewhere between a, a dwarf and an elf. Just bear with me. But the weakest of the weak. And in the journey to destroy the ring, this fellowship that has gathered of of nine who are on this journey have encountered trials after trials, struggle after struggle. And now they find themselves deep in a mountain wondering how to get out. Frodo bemoans the fact that the ring ever came to him. We can empathize with that. Have you read the words, why me, Lord? Why is this happening? And so Frodo says, I wish the ring would have never come to me. And Gandalf responds to him, so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, beside the will, of the, the, the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. You've not been abandoned in the difficult times. The question is, is not necessarily why has this happened or why has this not happened, but to decide how you will live out your faith in the difficult times. And I say this to you, not as a theorist who is dealing with some philosophy, but as one who daily has to make a decision to either grumble about the way life is going or to say, Lord, I will trust you even in the midst of adversity because to every one of us the time will come when life will not go your way and you will have to make a decision. I will either press on in the faith Or I will reject the faith and become lukewarm. To every one of us. And it's not just a one-time moment. The, The times will come where we will ask ourselves that time and time again. Because the course that is set before us is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And therefore it calls for endurance. And even more so today. Graduates, if I may state the obvious... You live in a time of unparalleled social change. In fact, I would not refer to it as change, but as social upheaval. I do not say this to speak in a a manner of hyperbola or to disparage the times in which we live because God has placed us in these times. 
Just as in the book of Esther, she is told for such a time as this, you are placed where you are. In this midst of social revolution, we have been placed to share, shine the light of the gospel. But the, the pace of change is shocking now. Today there are debates over gender which bring into question even what it means to be human. Today the sole determiner of, of action and truth in our life is no longer something outside of us, but every person is viewed to have their truth. And however they define truth is authoritative for them. And no one can speak of a truth with a capital T that guides us. To do so is to be viewed as oppressive. Today, Christianity is viewed as problematic and a hindrance to social progress. Those who hold to the antiquated beliefs of Christianity and the Judeo-Christian ethic are viewed to be on the wrong side of history, which is a statement that puzzles me because it's a statement of arrogance to say we know exactly where history is going. I dare say to our graduates that five years from now, you will look back on this date in five years and you will be shocked at the change that has occurred between then and the day you graduated. That's why perseverance is needed. That's why it's important to remember that you are not alone in this race and you are not left on your own to figure out how to run it. Pressing the athletic metaphor found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, we have a coach that is saying, believer, if you want to run this race with endurance, this is how. And the first thing is this, we have examples to follow, so think on them. That's verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is a reference back to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is referred to as the hall of faith where faithful men and women are held up as, as examples to follow. And it's not that they are watching us as if this great cloud is watching us because these believers are now in heaven. They are in the presence of God. And quite frankly, they have better things to do in the presence of God rather than looking back on earth. The point he is saying is that we are surrounded by models that have run the course with endurance. We are surrounded by examples that faced adversity and did not give up. When you read through the list, you'll find the good like Enoch. You'll find the bad like Samson. You'll even find the ugly like Jephthah. And if you're wondering why I divided them up like that, your homework is to read the book of Judges and find out. This list shows us two important things. You will find great encouragement in reading and studying church history. We gain encouragement by looking at those who have gone down the road in front of us and learning about how they face the challenges of life. What we will find is that the challenges they faced are really not that different from the challenges we face today. I was reminded of that this past week. Recently, I've started reading a, a theologian I had never read before, a German theologian named Karl Barth. He cast a large shadow over 20th century theology. In 1934... As Nazis were rising to power in Germany, Karl Barth, Martin Niemöller, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer gathered a group of pastors in Barmen, Germany to address the issue where Hitler was pressing the church to support the Nazi regime. The church was being co-opted and being used politically so that the Nazis would have power and the backing of the church. 
these pastors courageously drafted a document called the Barman Declaration. There are six main points to it. I want you to see them because I was struck by how applicable they are today to the church in America. First, the source of revelation is only the Word of God, Jesus Christ. Any other possible sources, earthly powers, for example, will not be accepted. No human can stand and say, I bear God's revelation. Number two, Jesus Christ is the only Lord of all aspects of personal life. There should be no other authority. It is Jesus who guides us believers in how we are to live. No other authority. The message and order of the church should not be influenced by the current political convictions. I read that and I thought, my goodness, was that written in 2022? The church is beyond the political battles of the day and should stand outside of them saying, Thus saith the Lord, He is our authority. Look at the next three. The church should not be ruled, ruled by a leader, the Fuhrer. There's no hierarchy in the church. The state should not fulfill the task of the church and vice versa. State and church are both limited to their own business. Therefore, the Barman Declaration rejects the subordination of the church to the state. The church does not live to support the state and the subordination of the word and spirit to the church. The church does not stand over the spirit or the scripture as if to control it. It is the spirit and the scripture that controls the church. I'm getting excited about this document. That's, that is theologically courageous to stand in front of those who would say the church is here to serve us and to say no. Be encouraged by the lies who have gone before us. Learn from them. Soak in the richness of the history we have before us. The second thing I would say in this, this avenue is be active in the community of faith now. While we learn from history, let's not ignore the resource that God has placed around us, that resource being the body of Christ. Once again, as a pastor, allow me to state the obvious. There is a trend across all evangelical churches that once someone graduates high school, they slowly decrease their church attendance. Lifeway Research did a survey finding that 66% of American young adults who used to go to church regularly, attended yearly as teenagers, dropped out for at least one year between the ages of 18 and 22. I want to encourage you graduates and others not to think that church is something optional. We need one another in order to run the race with endurance. And just as I spoke of examples in the past, I want you to remember this. There are examples of faithful living in the chairs around you. There are saints in this room that have endured trials and tribulations. There are saints who have walked faithfully through the adversity of life. They have known struggle and success, trials and triumphs. There is wisdom located in the chairs around one another. And we must break out of our self-imposed homogeneous ghettos and get to know one another. What did you just say, Pastor? It is natural for us to congregate with those who are our age and share the same hobbies and life experiences. That's natural. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. 
However, we must also recognize there is a richness in the body of Christ. And it only becomes problematic when we refuse to reach out to get to know one another across generational lines. That means those who have more mileage on us than others need to be open to building relationships with those that are younger and to share our life. And those who are younger, in your teens and 20s and early 30s, are you open to learn from those who have gone down the road before? It's wisdom to say, I don't know what to do here. And to talk and to be open about that. This summer, there are opportunities to get to know one another outside of this building. Simple things. June, there's going to be Trinity Night at the the baseball park in Johnson City. In July, church-wide picnic for all ages. And in August, we're going to get together and eat ice cream together. And if there's anything other than the Holy Spirit that will bond you, it's eating ice cream together. It's easy to say, well, I'm just going to stay home. I encourage you. Even plead with you, come and get to know one another. To talk about life. Satan wants to keep us from building those cross-generational relationships. He knows that if he can remove you from the body, it's like kicking an ember away from the fire. And slowly, that fire, that ember will die. Don't let that happen. Second thing the coach tells us is found in the middle of verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin that slows us down. Lay aside that which will slow you down as you run. Now the preacher in Hebrews is continuing this athletic metaphor. Lay aside that which would slow you down. In ancient Greece, the athletes would compete in the nude. And while that is not practiced today, you will take note that in athletic competitions, athletes do not compete wearing overcoats and heavy rain gear. They want to be able to run and move quickly. The athlete will lay down anything that would slow them down. And the race that is in front of us is calling for the same thing. Every weight and sin is a way of saying anything that would impede your walk with God needs to be laid to the side. Weight and sin go together like saying sick and tired. It draws this picture of anything that would inhabit you, inhibit you from walking after God, you need to intentionally lay aside because that thing will destroy you. Charles Swindoll tells the story of Tom Rathman, retired NFL player who was out hunting northern California, hunting for deer. He saw this rocky ridge, this small rocky ridge, and he decided that he was going to climb up it, get to the top, peer over, see if there are any deer or, or elk out on the other side. So he puts his gun over his shoulder, starts climbing up this, this ridge, this slope. He gets up to the top, puts his hands on the top, pulls himself up, and that's when he noticed the movement just out to his left eye. As he was climbing and got to the top, he had disturbed a rattlesnake. And the rattlesnake was not too happy about this. So the rattlesnake struck at him. Now it just so happened that it was cool. So Tom Rathman was wearing a thick turtleneck. And as the snake struck at him, the snake hit the turtleneck and the fangs of the snake lodged in the turtleneck. Now if you're familiar with physics, according to Newton, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And you know that after a snake strikes, it usually recoils back. Well, now all this energy had gone forward, and there was no recoil. 
What that means is the rest of the snake followed the head and ended up wrapping itself around Tom Rathman's neck. He said he could literally feel the venom going down his skin. Now, at this point, the snake hit him with such force, it knocked him off balance. And he fell head first back down the ridge and found himself wedged between two rocks. Now, this was a good news, bad news scenario. The good news was that the fall dislodged the snake from his turtleneck. The bad news was it dislodged the snake from his turtleneck. Because the snake was also wedged in between these rocks and was able to continue striking at him. But could not get an angle to sink its fangs. So time and time again, the nose of the rattlesnake is hitting his chin. I'd have been dead right there, poison or not. <laughs> Rathman realized he was going to pass out soon. And that would be his death. So with his left, his right hand, he was able to work his way. He grabbed the snake in the middle, worked his way up to the snake's neck, and began to squeeze and choked the rattlesnake to death. About an hour later, he came walking out of the forest. A park ranger saw this man coming out, white as a sheet, holding a rattlesnake in his right hand. They had to uncurl his fingers to get the snake out. Here's my point. If we recognized that sin is just as deadly as a rattlesnake stuck in your turtleneck, we'd get rid of it. But we become comfortable with it. We justify it. When the truth is, is that all sin is just as deadly as a rattlesnake. It is a power believer that wants to destroy you. Period. We cannot mess around with it. And this is a call to say, lay aside the sin just like you would seek to lay aside a rattlesnake that's trying to kill you instead of justifying anger and lust and worry by saying, well, that's just the way I am, to say, Lord, take me as I am, but change me. And to engage with the community of faith and the Scripture and run the race by laying those sins aside because they will not only inhibit you from running, they will destroy you. Sin will ultimately destroy you. The best way to run the race is not just by looking at the past and the present, not just by laying aside sin, but look at the third coaching advice we are given. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Focus on him. I know one of the reasons that many people say they quit coming to church is that the church has failed them in some way. And believe me, our list of failures could be long. But it does not change the fact of who Jesus is and that we are his body. You know, in sports, any sport that involves a ball, there's one basic rule that you learn from an early age. Keep your eye on the Keep your eye on Jesus. Keep focused on him. Why? Look, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is, he began our faith. He who began a good work in you. He will bring it to completion. Jesus sounded the starting gun of our race, and he will see us across the finish line. And notice that in focusing upon him, we are seeing one who does exactly what we are being instructed to do. Notice the symmetry of the language. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. Look back to verse 1. 
At the end of verse 1, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Jesus ran the path that God ordained for him, just like you and I are to run the path that God has ordained for us. And the path of Christ was not easy. Notice, he endured the cross, despised the shame. And what that means is that the cross, one of the most shameful ways to die, Jesus embraced that shame. Now, why did he do that? We could say it was because of his great love for us, his obedience to God, and those would not be incorrect. But notice what the author of the Hebrews focuses on. The joy that was set before him. Joy. And recognizing that the adversity of this life is not the end of the race, that if we focus only on the present moment, we may quit, but there is greater joy ahead and that we are called to live for that joy in the presence of God. Live for more than just the moment. You can take the easy way, the way of least resistance, but in doing so, you're robbing yourself of joy. If I were to call someone up here and to make them an offer, and I were to say, okay, you've got a choice. I can either give you $1 million right now tax-free. One million, it's yours. Or I can give you a penny right now. We'd say, give me the million dollars. However, what if I said, I'll give you a penny today, and then I'll double it every day for the next 30 days. So that today you get one penny, tomorrow you get two pennies. The third day you'll get four pennies. The next day you'll get eight pennies. So do you want a million dollars or that money doubled every day for 30 days? Well, if you chose the latter, at the end of 30 days you would receive $5,368,709.12. Or you can take the million now. See, that's the choice that is often faced. Do I want the ease of the moment now, or do I want to trust God that there's a better deal, something, a greater joy that is on down the road? That's why he says, focus on Christ. Now, the ways to do that are not, not secret. There are ways that we know. Being in the Word, praying together, worshiping together, being involved in community, and it's the call to make the choice to run with endurance the race that is set before you. Graduates, you've reached a great milestone, one that we celebrate with you, but it's not the end. Now you must continue the race of faith. Several years ago, I heard a message from a pastor out of a mega church in Nashville, and I really wish that I could remember the name and share that with you to give him proper credit because um, this is one of those sermons a preacher hears and he th you think, man, I wish I could preach like that. This church celebrates graduation day in a huge way. They have a three-hour service. Can I get a witness? No, just kidding. They celebrate graduation by recognizing first the kindergartners. Then they celebrate the high school graduates, then the college graduates, and then they celebrate the postgraduate degrees. And it is a day of celebration. Moms and dads are thrilled, and they list the whole litany of things that the students have accomplished and on this particular day, when the recognitions were done and the preacher got up to preach, he preached a message simply entitled, Title or Testimony. And he began this survey of the Old Testament that culminated with Christ, where he said, you know what, you look back through Old Testament history and you see that, that Pharaoh was a man who had the title. He was the ruler of Egypt. 
But Moses had the testimony. You read on in in the history of the Old Testament, you come to Jezebel. Jezebel had the title queen, powerful, manipulator, worked in a, a Machiavellian way to get anything and everything that she wanted. She had the title. But Elijah had the testimony. Nebuchadnezzar was king of all Persia. Anything that he wanted, he had. The pleasures of life were at his beck and call. He was the king. But Daniel had the testimony. Pilate was the governor, ruler of Judea. Nothing would happen in that province outside of his say-so. He was the man entrusted and entitled with power. He had the title of governor. But our Jesus had the testimony. All through life, you are going to face that dichotomy. Do you want the title or the testimony? Do you want pleasure for a moment or the testimony? And I tell you today, it is that testimony that will make the lasting difference even into eternity. Let us take these words and run the race with endurance. Bow with me, if you will. Gracious Lord, I want to thank you for the grace that you have given us that has saved us and sustained us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not set us on the course of life on our own as if we are to figure it out and to generate enough strength on our own to live for you. Father, you've given us the Spirit. You've given us one another. You've given us your Word. You've given us everything that we need to run the race with endurance. Now, Father, help us to do just that. Run. Father, I I echo the prayer that Michael prayed for our graduates. Strengthen them, O God. Give them wisdom. Turn their hearts continually towards you. And Father, I pray that for us as your people, work within us that we would love you more than the things of this world. Give us wisdom. Give us strength and courage to run the race with endurance. Glorify your name, Father, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.